Welcome to the official SPGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Hello, everybody. I don't know if it's morning, noon, or night where you are, but we're back at the JPGN restaurant. And we have picked out for you by Andreas Yenke a tasting menu from the September issue of the journal. No, there's no ordering a la carte here. Everything is picked out for you along with the flight of wines. Just sit back and enjoy yourself. And we'll start with an article from Mansuri et al. from Boston Children's Hospital on intestinal metaplasia discovered in a retrospective study of gastric epithelial biopsies and what it might mean. Dr. Jenke, always a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, nice to um, meet you again after summer holidays. So we are back to work and um, we just start with an easy one. I mean, gastric intestinal metaplasure. Um, sometimes as a pediatric gastroenterologist, you read that on your pathology report and then at least I can speak for myself. You ask yourself, what does it really mean? So we have the data from the adults so that it's related to H. pylori and also to later development to dysplasia and then carcinoma. But what it really means in children is always dif difficult to interpret. And I was really happy to ha see this large cohort. I mean, during the period observed in this um, paper, they had at least 8,000 patients who underwent upper um, GI endoscopy. And interestingly enough, only 38 patients were found to have a gastric intestinal metaplasia. So that, first that of all, said, that said, that said, they excluded anybody who looked on endoscopy as if he or she might have Barrett's type changes. Uh, yeah, that's true. But um, I mean, I do pediatric gastroenterology for more than 10 years now, mm -hmm. and I had no Barrett in children so far. So okay, well, I then it was know. an easy it was an easy cohort yeah. to exclude. Got that? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I I, I assume maybe they included one excluded one patient or, or oh, two. Right. So or the, that won't that none. won't have that won't have skewed the results unduly. So inf inflammation yeah. and H. pylori, and uh, <sighs> inflammation H. pylori and goblet cells in the biopsy specimens. This is, of course, making sure that they knew that they were north of the pylorus because when you slip into the duodenum, it's nothing but goblet cells. Absolutely. So so the authors also discussed this as a potential confounder in their results because it was a retrospective study. But from my personal experience, I mean, it's really difficult to really take gastric or trying taking a gastric biopsy and then slipping back into the pylorus and ending up in the in the um, duodenal bulb. I mean, this is really, I mean, I don't know how this can happen. So I, I think the numbers are quite reliable. And from my perspective, 
it clearly demonstrates it's rare. It's not really associated to H. pylori in, in children, so mm -hmm, at least mm -hmm. not to that extent as it is in adults. And what's quite interesting is or, or reassuring is that they also had a small cohort, like 50% of the patients who received a rescope. And right, in these patients, right. more than 80%, in a more than 80% cases of the cases, and there was no progression to dysplasia. In fact, in most cases, the metaplasia vanished. So not only did it not progress, it went away. Absolutely. So I think it's phenomena in, in children. So as a pediatric gastroenterologist, you need to know about it. But I think it's nothing we should be scared of. And um, we just need to reassure the parents who might have read something in the internet, which then most likely comes from, from other data, just reassuring them that this is nothing to be scared of or to bother about. It's a phenomenon that went away. It's, it's associated with, uh, with um, chronic inflammation and that's it. So I think this is important to know. So what are you going to be doing with these patients aside from watchful waiting and rescoping after an interval? Well, I wouldn't go for rescoping. I would just oh, go okay. to the parents and say, look, we found that this is, we, we see this also in adults, but in, in children, it has no major consequences. If the kid is without any clinical symptoms, we do not, we do not need to, to do a rescope, just, just so, okay. reassure the patients or parents that nothing bad happens. So far as we know, this is a nothing burger. It's in a piece of paper and you don't need to worry about your child for it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a nice little package as, uh, as a first course starter. Let's move on to the main, which I think is a bit more problematic. That's a, uh, that's a study that, in my opinion, barely crosses the border from plural of anecdote equals data into proper data. It's a study of, uh, now you're going to have to pronounce this word because it's not one familiar to me, Andreas, but a study of something that is an analog Titoglutide, thank you. Okay, an analog of glucagon like peptide 2, which says nothing to me. And in the article itself, it says simply regulating functional and structural integrity of enterocytes. Um, that sounds like pro bono contra malum, or uh, it's, it, it has good magic. Um, I don't know what the mechanisms are, but it's used in people who have short bowel syndrome. And it's used in adults with some effectiveness. It's an expensive drug. And the question is, is it safe in kids? So these authors, mostly from Japan, with a Finnish contribution and a couple of hits from, the great, from great Britain, have accumulated a small store of patients in whom they've tried this drug. And what did they find? 
Well, as you pointed out, the main problem is that short bowel syndrome, which then also depends on parental nutritional support, is very rare in children, which is good, actually. So True, true. Um, so um, the authors had quite difficulties to find enough patients for the studies. So, and this is, of course, one of the main issues of this study. But um, the data they, they present suggests that titoglutide is safe. So they had no major adverse events. So, I mean, just a little bit belly pain or some redness at the injection site. So that's it. But no major adverse event. So I think it's it's an important information because it clearly shows you can use this drug without expecting any major adverse event. So the problem though is how do you assess the effects of this drug? They talk about Absolutely. reductions in yeah. in volume of parenteral alimentation required in order to get a kid through the day. From what I read, the administration of the drug in the few children who actually completed the study um, wasn't over a period long enough to, to really follow growth curves. Have I got that wrong? Well, the, the growth of infants is quite fast. So you have 6 to 12 centimeters a year in infants mm -hmm. and also in younger children you have six to seven centimeters a year so if you have a period of a year so it's you you can assess whether there is adequate growth and also weight gain so it's this is different from from adults um, but I, I agree i mean overall they have 20 patients in their study and um, they have 15 controls and all controls are infants so they have no control group for the children's. So it's it's very, very difficult to really make any clues out of this data. But on the other hand, this is most likely the best we will get. Because... Well, it's, it, it, hey, 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 you're being so negative here, Andreas. That's not like you. Right now, we're going to have every, every, everybody and his cousin is going to be saying, hey, look at this paper, we can give this agent. And you, and in our discussions a little while ago, you said to me, you know, we need, we need a registry so that yeah, everybody using this drug is recorded and that there's a uniform protocol rather than it being just totally random. I absolutely agree. I think this is, this is the only chance to generate reliable data on, on this drug. So we need some some real life experience, and we can only generate that with with a with a registry. But I think it's also important that we do not suggest the the parents of the patients that this is some kind of a um, miracle drug. So we need to make sure that the expectations are within a certain range, so that um, the parents are not disappointed if their kids are not growing or, or as well as, as expected. 
So I think we, we the da this data is quite okay. We have a, a good safety profile. We see some kind of efficacy. But what's really important is that everyone who's going to start a patient on tetoglutide needs to register these patients in some kind of European or worldwide or whatever registry. And this will then allow us to really say or, or identify the benefits of this drug. So, I mean, of course, if they, if they say we have a 35% reduction of, of parental volume, so this means that instead of um, 16 hours, you have only 10 hours or 12 hours on, on the IV line as a kid. This gives you much more room for activities, which is a great benefit. But um, we need to really have reliable data on that. Andreas, so a registry. Takeda Yakuhin, Takeda Pharmaceuticals, make this drug. Takeda Yakuhin sponsored this study. Who's going to set up such a registry? We have that, uh, to, uh, the most important thing the mice said getting together in order to make our lives safe is to put a bell on the neck of the cat. Couldn't agree more. But who's going to approach Takeda and say, we want such a registry and we want you to support the care of these patients with contributions of the drug? I mean, if you ask for my personal opinion, I think this should come from, from the government. From because the I government? Mean, yes, because titoglutide is really very expensive. I mean, you have a patient and um, sometimes one patient is 100,000 euros a year. Good Depends Lord. on the weight. So, and I think if the government says, or basically at least in Germany, the government is going to pay for that, or the health insurance system, which is a governmental body in some way. And if the, the government says, okay, you need to have a registry, and without the registry, we are not going to pay for, for this drug. So then it would be quite easy to acquire sufficient data. So who's going to put a flea into the government's ear? Is that going to be Espigen? Why not? Wow, something for, uh, something for the society to take up as a whole and to say, we need this in order to save money or at least in order to use money sensibly. That's absolutely uh, okay. That's that's yeah. a good, that would be a lovely start. Right, we finished our main. Hope everybody enjoyed it. And now it's time for the pastry cart. We have two selections from the pastry cart today. Um, one is a letter from a French Italian group. Although, knowing what I do, uh, the Italian contributor um, has spent a lot of time at Le Kremlin Bicetre. And a response to a proposal from this Franco-Italian group um, by Espigan itself. Tell us about it. Well, this is quite interesting. And um, I think this is nice about JPGN that you pick up these dis discussions and can be part of these discussions. So initially, this started with a, with a paper which has not been published in JPGN, but in the Journal of Hepatology by the um, Franco-Italian um, group 
on autoimmune hepatitis and their strategies in terms of withdrawing um, the treatment. So it was just a retrospective study, but they had 115 patients and in, in 50% they withdraw the, the drug and from these 50%, also 50% remained in remission. So which is so quite important. So 25% didn't, right? Yes. So, so um, in the original paper, <clears throat> in 50% of the cases, um, the, the treatment was stopped. And mm -hmm. um, from these 50%, 50% of the patients remained in remission. So means that of 100 patients, 25% do not need the medication anymore. But it's difficult to cite who this is. So this is the main problem. Okay. At this, at this juncture, the way, one of the ways, at least at King's, where I practiced in histopathology, was to obtain a liver biopsy specimen and to say, is there inflammation? Because so often, inflammation on the slide is not matched by elevated serum transaminase activities, which is what you folks are dealing with at the bedside. Absolutely. And with this statement, you just put your finger in the open um, wound of this discussion because I'm doubting Thomas. Group, oh dear. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, well, sometimes it's good to do, to doubt some data to make uh, the right decisions. So, so the Franco Italian group argues that it, it is not necessary to perform a liver biopsy before deciding whether or not to withdraw the medication. So they argue we need to have a negative immunoglobulin G and um, negative AAT levels. So mm -hmm. substantially below the um, upper normal limit. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they say, okay, if you have low IgG and low ALT levels, it is safe to stop the, the medication. But I mean, from these 50 patients or around 50 patients in their cohort, where they decided to stop the medication, two had a um, relapse with a severity, um, which eventually led directly to liver transplantation. So the decision to withdraw immunosuppression on the basis of IgG values and serum ALT activity led to loss of the native liver in in four percent of kids. Absolutely, I mean Whoa, I think this okay. is a substantial um, number, and um, this is also what the Asbgan Hepcom criticizes, and um, I absolutely agree with that. So, so you cannot just decide or state that um, we need to review recommendations based on a retrospective cohort on a single center without clear protocols on decision making um, with respect to stopping or continuing the treatment. So this is the, this is a main problem because in this original paper, it also states that 
in some cases, the physician, for some reason, because of a gut feeling or whatsoever, decided not to withdraw the treatment. So we have no clear cohort. So so it's no, it's not a defined population of patients. So well, we cannot talk about gut feeling in a, in a paper. We need to have clear criteria. Of course, in a, in a real life clinical setting, sometimes you have a gut feeling and you follow it or you, you, you don't. But um, a publication is not the right area to talk about gut feelings. So I think the ASPCON HEPCOM is absolutely right that before we decide to withdraw the treatment in children with autoimmune hepatitis, we need to have a liver biopsy. I mean, it's not liver biopsy, it's not brain biopsy. It's, it's, it's just a small procedure with not too many complications nowadays. So That's we have ultrasound, guided biopsy and so on. That's just what I wanted to ask you. Complication rates of liver biopsy. The liver biopsy procedure is held up as a sort of a specter, a bugaboo, a something that this is scary. We're going to put a needle into your baby's liver. But um, is the percentage of loss to the liver needed to transplant complications owing to liver biopsy greater than or less than 4%? I would um, assume much less than 4%. So that's my, that's my gut feeling, if I'm allowed to use a yeah. gut feeling here. <laughs> yeah, you are. So well, okay. Well, um, if you if you want to, if you want to follow the uh, Franco-Italian group's recommendations, uh, first you're on your own, and second, uh, woof, uh, burn some feathers and say some prayers. <laughs> Nicely said. So I think um, these were very very nice wrap up on the liver issue. At the end, I just want to highlight two educational events which um, take place at the end of September. The Masterclass on Antrim Nutrition in Rotterdam and the Monothematic Conference on Pancreatitis in Children in Belgium. For both, um, registration is open and you are highly welcome to register. If you need any more information, go to aspgun.org. Great. Um that was fantastic. Thank you very much. And I guess we'd just better call the waiter over to the table and ask for the bill. Thank you all for attending. Bye-bye. See you next time.